You're listening to For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm Emmy Farley, Workday and ERP Product Manager at Bowdoin College, and this is That Registrar is Sus. Hello, and welcome to For the Record. I'm your host, Doug McKenna, University Registrar at George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And today, we're going to talk about something that is said to affect upwards of 70% of professionals. That is the imposter phenomenon. You might know it as imposter syndrome, or you might know it as that inner voice in your head that discounts your accomplishments and chalks up any of your successes to luck. It's not a great feeling. So the registrar is sus comes from the game Among Us, where you are supposed to find the imposter and you find the imposter by saying that that person is sus. And then they tell you whether they're the imposter or not. Anyway, that's where that comes from. In case you had any questions, Emmy wasn't sure if everyone would know what that means. And I agreed. So I uh, explained things. Joining me today is my friend and former colleague, Emmy Farley. Hi, Emmy. Hi, Doug. I have been trying to get Emmy to participate as a guest on this podcast for a while. And I would pitch an idea and you would say something like, I don't know anything about that or similar words to that effect. And then at one point, I think you said, if you ever do an episode on imposter syndrome, I'm there. And so here you are. Here Thank I am. you for being here. And mm-hmm. if you would give us a little introduction of yourself, maybe a tiny glimpse into your career arc, what you've done and what you're doing now. Yeah, I have been in higher ed for 20 or so years. Um, I started working in admissions a long, long time ago and uh, eventually started moving into reading transfer applications, which led to me moving over into the registrar's office where I evaluated transfer credits, worked my way through truly literally every position you could possibly hold in a registrar's office over the years at institutions that run the gamut of every kind of institution that we could really have in these United States of America. And then Six and a half or so years ago, I joined Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota as the registrar, and I was there for a long time and then moved into IT, where I'm I'm now Workday and ERP product manager at Bowdoin. And so a big part of my job is sort of translating between functional users like the registrar's office, like financial aid, like uh, human resources, and translating that for IT and translating that for big old software companies like Workday and helping us all speak a common language and all come to shared goals. And so, you know, having all of these years of working with people across institutions through the registrar's office has been incredibly valuable in in making this transition into IT. So it feels weird to ask somebody to come be a guest on a podcast about having feeling like an imposter. And so thank you for being here and being willing to be vulnerable with me on this podcast. 
as we share a part of our existence that is not usually brought out into the light. But I think doing this will help other people either recognize that they're not alone in these kinds of feelings or even recognize that they're having those feelings, which I think is one of the ways that we can sort of diminish the negative effects of the imposter phenomenon. Totally. So, I think being vulnerable, yeah, I have learned over the last few years, being vulnerable has been directly responsible for me surviving and being able to thrive not only in my, my work, but in my home life. And so asking for help and, and I think naming, I don't feel like I know what I'm doing here has been crucial to me being able to grow and being able to how help other people have these conversations so that we don't feel like islands because that's so isolating and really damaging i agree let's do a little bit of background so that we're all same page in it and all the listeners are same page in it as well so just a little bit of history The term imposter phenomenon was coined by a pair of clinical psychologists, Dr. Pauline Clance and Dr. Suzanne Imes, both from Georgia State University. And so in the late 70s, they started noticing some patterns in their female patients. And so they did what academics do. They conducted a research study of 95 women, which led to their paper. The the title of the paper was The Imposter Phenomenon in High Achieving Women dynamics and therapeutic intervention. And that was published in 1978. And so I just want to quote a little bit uh, from that paper where they describe their participants. They say, however, despite their earned degrees, scholastic honors, high achievement on standardized tests, praise and professional recognition from colleagues and respected authorities, these women do not experience an internal sense of success. They consider themselves to be, quote, imposters. Women who experience the imposter phenomenon maintain a strong belief that they are not intelligent. And in fact, they are convinced that they have fooled anyone who thinks otherwise. You cheered a little as I was reading that. And so I just want to get your reaction to that quote from the paper in 1978. What do you think about that? First, it's distressing that this was from 1978 and people are still sort of talking about it like it's a joke. I mean, it's this is a long time since that paper to now. And even talking about feeling imposter syndrome is, is real. It feels like it's sort of reserved for women's Instagram stories and, and sort of shared conversations with your friends over a glass of wine or something like that. And this is really, it is a huge issue. My husband and I were just talking the other day about, you know, studies have shown that men who meet a few of the qualifications for a job will apply for it. Whereas women need to read through the entire job application and say, I am missing these couple of little competencies. I shouldn't apply for this job the ways that imposter syndrome bears itself out on our our day-to-day lives is just it's so distressing and i don't know how many times like i am a smart woman i am an accomplished woman i have done a lot of things in my life and yet even when you invited me to talk about this doug i was like well what right do i have to speak about imposter syndrome right i mean 
<laughs> and that was just it felt like such a messed up way to approach this. What right do I have to talk about imposter syndrome in spite of the fact that I've been fighting imposter syndrome forever? And I feel that way about hosting this podcast. There's a, a real sense of like, at some point, somebody's going to find out that I don't know anything or that right. I, I am not qualified to host this podcast. Right. Or, I, you know, I've fooled them all. They're all I've really pulled, pulled one over on everybody, which is fantastic. Let me share one other footnote from the paper in 1978. It says, quote, the question has been raised as to whether or not men experience this phenomenon. In our clinical experience, we have found that the phenomenon occurs with much less frequency in men and that when it does occur, it is with much less intensity. We have received mixed opinions from male colleagues with whom we have consulted. The attribution research findings summarized later imply that the imposter phenomenon would be found less frequently in men than in women. And we have noticed that the phenomenon in men who appear to be more in touch with their quote unquote feminine qualities, this clinical observation needs to be researched, which is a funny thing. Now, Does it though? It, it, Just. Amusingly, they postulate that men would not experience this in a similar way. But then a later study showed that the when so Clance created the Clance imposter phenomenon scale, the SIPS or KIPS, I don't know how they CIPS, and you can take it, you can take the imposter phenomenon test. And I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes for you to you, the listener at home, to go take the, the imposter phenomenon test for yourself. But what they found when they administered the test to uh, faculty, and so this slightly different population, you know, faculty are, are special. The men scored higher on the imposter phenomenon scale than the women did, Ooh. which was uh, went against their initial postulations, which is science. Now we got to figure out why that is. And so back to your point, like men will apply. Men will apply for a job when they see the title. Like they don't, it doesn't even almost even matter what is in it or what's required of them. They're like, I'm going to do this. But that doesn't prevent them from feeling like they're not qualified. So their behavior is different as a result of that feeling. Mm. Or, and, and so I'm not here to solve that. Sure. I'm just here to acknowledge that it, this is a shared experience of feeling like you're going to get found out. And so I want to read another quote because that's, and then we'll talk more. And this is from Ket's Debris. To some extent, of course, we are all imposters. We play roles on the stage of life, presenting a public self that differs from the private self we share with intimates and morphing both selves as circumstances demand, displaying a facade as part and parcel of the human condition. And so while I agree with that, the difference there is for people experiencing imposter phenomenon, those feelings of inadequacy never dissipate. And so talk to me a little bit about what you were saying before. Like this feels like something that you would sit and share about over a glass of wine with people you are close with, but it doesn't feel like something that you would share with people you work with at work. And, and so 
where is the divide there and why is it that way? Well, I think you almost are expected to have a different persona in in your work life than you maybe do in your private friend life. There's sort of this um, air of perfection and, and like perfection is so toxic, you know, I mean, we should be shooting for excellence, not perfection because perfection is, is unrealistic and unattainable. But there is this sort of feeling that if you have this, you have this job where you have to, you have these tasks you have to do and you've been hired to do it because you, you know, you are the person we thought could do this. And there's this if you are vulnerable, if you say you don't know that, if you if you have to stop someone and say, could you clarify that for me? I don't understand the words that you were using. Like <laughs> people will find out, and boy, that happens to me a lot now that I work in IT, but people will find out that you're not you're not qualified, you're not the right person, you weren't the right person who was supposed to do this. And if you can't have those conversations with your colleagues, you don't get it chance to to learn more things about other areas of of your work or where you know your your colleagues might have unbelievable knowledge about something that you're struggling with and like i have always felt that success is not a pie you succeeding at something doesn't diminish someone else's success or doesn't doesn't take away from their uh, capacity or ability to be successful yeah. it's a limited and, set it's, yeah. it's like a candle's flame where like if you light somebody else's candle, you haven't diminished you the haven't. flame from your own candle. You've doubled the luminescence of wherever you are. Precisely. And so if you are asking someone for help or, you know, that you're giving them the opportunity to let their own light shine a little bit brighter, but then you're also, you, then you've added that information or that knowledge or skill set to your repertoire but there's this thing about you just shouldn't be vulnerable at at work and i think you know people get punished for vulnerability or sometimes i mean i don't i've certainly had supervisors where i walked in to ask a question and i just felt like i was taking their time in the wrong way and so that does train you not to ask questions sometimes or not to be vulnerable and and so it is hard to ask those kinds of things. Whereas when you're with your friends, you already know that they like you for who you are or they that they... I'm already the least talented of all of my friends. So, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't have any compulsions about that. I'm just like, I don't know why they stick around with me. I don't know why I, they're still my friends because they're all better at everything than I am. And so like in my personal life, I don't have any problem. Like I'm, that's the role I play in our friend group. I'm the dumb, untalented one. And <laughs> so I wanna ask you about those, you mentioned those conversations, especially now having transitioned to IT where you have to pause and say, could you clarify that? Or could you explain something or go deeper? Tell us about what is that like? What is that experience for you? How do you address those situations? And then what are the outcomes, positive or negative, for you and for others, for the team, for the project? Sure. I mean, even at, at a prior job that I had, I was in a meeting that I had called to try to understand something better and was told in that room, 
I don't think you're going to understand this. So we're just going to have this conversation without you. When I, when I tried to stop them to get them to bring me in and I said like, <laughs> could we try? Is this how you would handle the conversation with somebody who was within your own office, you know? And so that's another place where you, know, you tried to be vulnerable and you were shot down. And so I have found here in some ways, like I was hired specifically because I'm not in IT, because I'm an outsider, because I, I resonate more with the, the functional folks than the technical folks. So in some ways I have a really good excuse to be able to stop and say, I'm sorry, I, you know, like I'm hired to be a workday product manager, but I've only gotten so far as to, you know, see demos and really get started on that. So I've never really worked in workday before. So I'm learning this all alongside of, of my colleagues in, in our offices. And so it, for me to stop and be willing to be the vulnerable person and to be willing to say, I'm so sorry, I think we might need to step back a couple of steps and try to model that for people. It gives them the feeling that this is something that they get to do. Or if I see somebody else modeling it, I try really hard to make sure and say, hey, I really appreciate you stopping and asking that question because I didn't know it either. Because this is so silly, but I remember in, I don't know, middle school or something like that, I zoned out for part of the lecture where she, my, my teacher was introducing variables. And so I came to, and everybody knew what <laughs> X meant, what Y meant. And so I'm sitting here going, okay, X is the 20 whatever number of the alphabet. And so that's standing in for 20, but why? Why would that? Why is the and one I, after it? <laughs> right. And I didn't want to ask the question because I didn't want to look like an idiot. And so for about two weeks, I just have no idea what was going on in algebra. <laughs> I still don't. <laughs> but now, right? I just, I can't do that. Yeah. You know? And so by, in some ways, by just saying, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you mean when you say vulnerable, when you say variables, you know, it just kind of lets other people off the hook because, you know, and you hear this from teachers and professors and whatnot all the time, but you are probably not the only person in the room with a question right. or somebody, you know, in, you know, even at Acro, you sit in a session and somebody's like, I'm sure this is kind of a dumb question. And people say there are no dumb questions, but it's true because no, you just don't know that everyone else in the room is on the same part of their journey with you. Yeah. You know, and, and I mean, think thing. about all the questions that we have about FERPA still, right? Like, right. how long is this? How many books are out there? How many times has Leroy probably answered the same question? But that doesn't mean it's not a valid question. It just means somebody hasn't been exposed to that yet. And um, one of the things about the registrar's office in particular is that there are a lot of things that are changing about uh -huh. the way that we do our work. But there haven't been very many things that have changed about FERPA in the last five years, but there have in the last 15 or 20. And so being able to give, especially registrar's office staff, the grace and the space to not know everything, you can't know everything. And that's mm -hmm. sort of why you, that's why we have teams, right? Is that right. hopefully there are strengths, different strengths that you can feed off of and play off of. And back to this experience of feeling like an imposter is the more that we can allow people to not know everything and to, to really help people understand that that's not even an expectation. Right. I tell my team, like, I have a lot of ideas and a lot of them are bad. So I'm counting on you to know 
the area that you're responsible for and to be able to head off some of my bad ideas so that they don't destroy everything. That gives them permission to both speak up and it gives them permission to rely on other people who have other kinds of expertise within the office. So not having an expectation or being clear about your expectations as a leader, as a supervisor, as a manager, as a registrar with your team and with others across the institution, I think is a really fundamental part of taking away some of the stigma of feeling like, holy moly, there's so much to know and I don't know anything. Or that you're expected to know everything. You know, I mean, I don't know how many times I would go into someone on my team and say, I know that I should know this by now, but I'm so sorry. I don't. Can you walk me through it again? Because I didn't. I mean, you can't keep everything in your head. It's impossible. Or yeah, um, that would mean I'd have to dump all the song lyrics that have accumulated. And that will never happen to you. It's just not going to. Or or um, modeling this. You get the same question 88 times in a week, right? How do I order my transcripts? And you feel like it's so clear on the website. And if somebody gets frustrated by having to answer that question all the time, it's like, well, but how could we expect them to know that, you know? And so not feeding into that because it, you know, all, all it does is normalizes that you're not expected to know everything. Yeah. Yeah. Do, 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 do. I feel like... We've solved everything. This is it. We're, we're done. We just need to be vulnerable, establish um, that people don't need to know anything and that that will lessen the, the experience of everyone who's listening, feeling like an imposter. But I do want to add a couple of things because now is a good time. I've got you here to discuss. Right here. Dr. Anna Parkman writes that imposterism at its root is about an inability to accurately self-assess with regards to performance. And so as I talk to my team about performance management and coaching, one of the things that I try and share with them is that people need the opportunity to fail and they need to be able to fail safely. And they need to be, they need to be encouraged, rewarded, and receive praise in a timely manner for the things that they're good at. And that's one of the ways that the American Psychological Association recommends addressing the feelings of imposter phenomenon. Ironically, I pulled an article from September of 2018 titled, Are You Suffering from Imposter Syndrome? Which I like to prepare some for the these conversations. But <laughs> I, I got to the end in the about the offer about the offer about the author. She is a third year industrial organizational psychology doctoral student at George Mason University. So dun, 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 dun. interesting. But one of the things that the article is recommending is talking about working smarter. There is a sense for people who have experienced imposter phenomenon and experienced success is that they feel like they have to work harder next time in order to prove that they were worthy of the success that they achieved the time before. And so that can lead to either an increase in procrastination or an increase in overworking. And neither of those things lead to positive outcomes in a, just in a general sense. Another thing is that they recommend seeking out things that you're good at and leaning on your strengths. 
And so there is this mm -hmm. dichotomy between like knowing what you're super good at and knowing that you need to develop in some areas. And then which ones do you focus on? Do you focus on your strengths? Do you focus on the things that you need to develop? And there's a lot of literature that says focusing, leaning in on your strengths and relying on other people for areas that you need, that you're not as strong at. So if you're really good with a technical implementation, do that, find ways that you can be involved in those things. But if you're not as good at you know, giving public presentations about the technical implementation that you're working on, find somebody on a team who can do the public facing part kinds of things. And that will, again, help diminish some of those feelings of not not being good enough or that you're going to be exposed for all the things that you don't know. And then another thing that they the, this article talks about is about seeking support. And I think we've talked about that a bunch where, and this can be informal, where you just share, like, I, I don't know that. Or it can be more formalized and have uh, do some outreach. Times are hard having a therapist is not, there shouldn't be a stigma associated with that. And so if you really feel like you're not able to manage those feelings, absolutely go talk to some, get some professional help. Obviously, casting it back, the imposter phenomenon was discovered and really written about and studied because clinical psychologists were noticing patterns of things with their patients. And so mm -hmm. Absolutely. Therapy is an option for people to go talk through some of these feelings and to get realistic assessments in, of whether those feelings are valid or not. What ways, Emmy, have you adopted other than just like being willing to pause a meeting and say, I don't know what you're talking about. Could you explain that to me again? What ways would you recommend for people who are experiencing imposter phenomenon to address those feelings? This is a very hard, but very good question. I think people are really there. There's it sometimes can be really unwilling to embrace their own awesome. Yeah. You, know? yeah. you, you, you feel like someone has to give you permission to be great or someone has to recognize your goodness in order for you to be able to claim it. And I mean, one of the things that I have tried to just make myself do is tell myself how great I am at things or, or, tell my boss, I was awesome at that, you know, and, and try to get comfortable singing my own praises, which is really unnatural for people. And I think for women in particular, this is, this is really difficult. I will say that one of the things that I struggled the most with, with imposter syndrome, when I started at Carleton was, I don't know how many times I heard reference to my age and how many times I heard reference to my gender. Oh, this young woman, blah, blah, blah. And then I started to feel like I was supposed to somehow be representative of women who were younger than 40 in this profession. And that was a lot of pressure. And I finally realized that number one, I needed to let go of that and stop feeling like I was supposed to be representing a whole bunch of people to the rest of the people that I was exposed to through my work. And number two, that I needed to try to figure out how to get comfortable with managing my supervisor, with managing the people that I um, was reporting up to and sort of finding ways of pushing back about, hey, you know, and, and it helped to try to develop a more personal relationship with them, which is not always easy or possible at every organization, but to say, you know, hey, how about we focus on what a great job I did instead of the fact that I'm young, 
you know, just tried to make it funny and conversational like that. Yeah. You made a great point, Doug, about surrounding yourself with people who maybe think or feel differently than you do. When I was hiring my associate registrar, I made sure to look for someone that I thought of as as sort of an anti-me in many ways, because I wanted someone who had a, a different way of looking at things, a different way of, of feeling about things, and, and someone who would bring a perspective that was something other than my own, because she had really different strengths than I did, and she thought in, about things in a different way than I did, and I thought that was really powerful. When Bowden was hiring for the Workday and ERP product manager role, they came to realize that they were going to need two people because the job was bigger than just one individual. And the way that they went about this was so different than anything I'd been exposed to before, and I thought it was so brilliant. They thought of the candidates as pairs and who are the people that are going to work really well together and what are the strengths and weaknesses that each of these people will bring to the teams. And they actually had us do the... um, Oh gosh, what are those things? The interviews, presentation, you know, the the personality tests, right? Sure the strengths finder. Strengths finder. They had us do a strengths finder, and they had a you know of all the finalists, they they gave us a strengths finder, and they had us send our results back to them, and they you know they took it with a grain of salt, but they looked at what are the ways that we can build a team that has different competencies and will work and build a team together in really different and powerful ways. And so the two of us that they hired, they, they used our strengths and weaknesses and our knowledge and our, and our experiences to put together what I think is, I, I can't imagine two people being better suited to work together on a, on a project like implementing Workday at an institution because we have different strengths, different weaknesses, different experiences. And we are not shy about saying, (laughs) you are the person who really brings this to the table. So I think this should probably be what you do. And this is way more in my wheelhouse. And I'm going to take that. And we just sort of seamlessly, this person takes the back seat this time. And this person takes the back seat this other time. And and having this non-competitive, supportive relationship is, is such a different professional experience for me that's been really rewarding. I love that. That's a fantastic hiring model. It was so great. I wish that more places had the opportunity to do that. A lot of times there, it's not a, anyway, I wish that more, more places had the opportunity to do that. A couple of things as a white male, heterosexual, cisgendered, married with kids, tall, graying hair, I don't have, I don't suffer from those same people foisting perceptions of my qualifications or capabilities, as you mentioned. So I want to highlight, though, the feeling that you shared that you felt like you had to represent all women and that, and especially all younger women Mm -hmm. in the profession. And I just want to put a find point there and acknowledge that we are both relatively privileged because of the color of our skin. Mm-hmm. And so when there are, if there's a black woman who is younger than 40 in this profession, she is not given the same grace or space that people would give someone who looks like me. Right. And just acknowledging that we are not in a situation in America in 2022 where the same assumptions are being made, 
equally about who is doing the job or who is participating and who are, who are the people who are making contributions. And mm-hmm. so these feelings of, do I belong here? I don't belong here. They're going to find out kinds of things have been shown to be more intense in minority groups, in underrepresented populations, especially when those individuals are participating in other larger entities that do not look like they look. Right. Um, and so as a leader, as a supervisor, as a manager, as a registrar, it's really important that we acknowledge that, yes, these feelings are valid for me, for us, but they are equally valid and probably more intense or more frequent for people who the system was not built for and who, (laughs) you know. So it's important as people, as human beings, to recognize the legitimacy of other human beings and to have them and to encourage them to participate in ways that maybe they have not been allowed to in the past or encouraged to in the past. And that leads to I I think beyond that, it is that same willingness to be vulnerable where you have the the obligation to make the table longer, where you have the obligation to make sure that if that person, you know, makes a great point that gets dismissed, or if you see some way that, that their experience, their professionalism, their talents are being diminished in some way or not recognized, or they're not being brought into the room, then you have, I think, the responsibility to actively make sure that you are not complicit in helping foster a feeling of of imposter syndrome for that person. Yeah, that absolutely. you are actively working to elevate and make sure that you know because if you know me feeling like an imposter, that is amplified for for people who do not share the same privileges or for BIPOC communities. And so like for, for me to be able to to say, well, if I'm feeling this way, there are other people who feel this times a thousand. And so being an active agent for change and making yourself be vulnerable on behalf of somebody else sometimes. Yeah. One thing that you said too that I was going to highlight was affirmations of people and their actual accomplishments and the work that they've done. And how powerful those things can be when you say to someone, you've done a really spectacular job with this. And to recognize their work and the, mm-hmm. to recognize their contributions. And I think that goes a long way also to, you know, it gets over the idea that you have to be great at everything. And to appreciate the work that somebody's doing is really important. So... I wrote down affirmations as you were talking (laughs) earlier, and I wanted to come back, swing back to that. That's all. Well, and I think that can be pretty hard in higher ed, right? Because you have one person doing how many people's worth of a job. And so it can be really hard to give people the space to not feel like they have to be good at everything because they're probably doing more than any human should be expected to do during their day jobs. And so even if you find just really small ways of recognizing when you saw that extra effort or, you know, you're having a staff meeting and you just say like, let's just take a minute, you know, you did amazing at that thing. Or like, well, I heard the way that you answered that student who came in who had that question. That was great. You really explained this thing 
really clearly and they obviously walked out knowing something, you know, like really knowing how to do this. And so um, even in those tiny ways of, of trying to build confidence in people or again, acknowledging, you know, I don't expect you to know this. This is a really hard concept or saying like, look, even, even the great Doug McKenna doesn't know that, you know, so just... <laughs> <laughs> which the, carries currency in certain circles. But the list for that is much longer than the list of things that I know. So <laughs> I do want to say registrar's offices are super complex. They are very complicated. There's a lot of information that individuals need to know, need to, to master. Um, there's policy, there's procedures, there's systems. Some of those systems are almost always changing. And so it can be very intimidating to come into a registrar's office mm -hmm. and to, to start learning from the ground up. And I think as registrars, as people who work in the registrar's office or registrar adjacent, we need to be aware of that and aware of how your employees, how our employees might be feeling about themselves, about their capabilities, about their, you know, their confidence level and to make space for people to ask questions, to make it okay to not know everything and to really model that behavior and to set the tone and then to, you know, encourage and respond and, and react when people do really good stuff. So, yeah. And even thinking, you know, beyond staff, think of, you know, how, boy, how many students are coming into your institution who do not share the language of higher education, who do not share the, the language of your specific institution, right? And so looking over your policies, looking over your web pages, looking over those things and thinking, if I were a 16-year-old, first-generation college student coming here, am I making it worse on them to be experiencing imposter syndrome by having them come in and think that they should just automatically know what all of these words mean, what it means to go to, who on earth is a registrar? What is a registrar's office anyway? What does a registrar's right. office do? And, I, and where? I, <laughs> right. Well, I didn't, I was just going to say that, Doug, because our website at Carleton, we did not have the physical location of our office on our website for a really long time until a new faculty member was looking for something and they felt comfortable reaching out to me and saying, did you know that the website for your ad, for your building, like there's a picture of your building and yes, we're a small campus, <laughs> but, but I didn't know where to go to, to do this thing. And I just was like, oh my God, how many years have we had this website up where we haven't had our physical address on there, right? Because you do, you get sort of, you get sort of complacent almost, or you take for granted that people know these things and they don't. And so, you know, if you're a new incoming faculty member, you are feeling imposter syndrome. If you are a new incoming student, whether you are a first generation or not, you are feeling some imposter syndrome. And so if we step back and, and in some ways you almost, you know, you think, oh, we are an institution of higher learning. We should have, we should, our websites should also reflect the, 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 the intelligence yeah. of our institution. No, websites should be written at an eighth grade reading level. And you should really do not assume that people just know that when they need to request their transcript, that they know that they have to log into whatever your self-service is, right? Like start there, say, go to this website and log in using your credentials. Do they have to have that at institution.edu? Put that in there. 
Don't make assumptions about what your community knows because you never know what little thing it is that's going to be the thing that makes somebody think, I don't belong here after all. That is a tremendous nugget of advice. I appreciate that. And it it's, you know, gets to that sense of belonging is so critical in retention. And that is the name of the game right now in higher res. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, people, everybody yeah. really does play a role in that, even if they don't think that they do. Yeah. I love it. Emmy, I'm going to pause this here for today and say thank you again for being willing to share your thoughts and feelings and to be vulnerable about your experience with imposter phenomenon, imposter syndrome, and to thank you for your advice and counsel on ways to address it and ways to assist others with managing it as well. Well, thank you for wanting to talk about it because I think it's really important and I think, you know, you pointed it out earlier, everybody suffers from this to one degree or another. And if we don't, if we don't have these conversations, then we can't do anything to try to correct it. Yeah. And as you said, anytime you don't ask a question, you miss an opportunity to learn something. So want to keep people focused on that. And a fun thing that I always tell my staff is that there are no dumb questions. There are a lot of dumb answers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from me, right? But it's they know, than, yeah. they know. Yeah, that's fun. Mm-hmm. Imposter phenomenon is a real thing, but it doesn't have to be overwhelming, and you certainly shouldn't feel like you're all alone with it. Thank you again to Emmy Farley for sharing her thoughts, experiences, and suggestions. As we said, we each have a responsibility to create a welcoming environment, an environment where it's safe to ask questions and to admit when you don't know something. It's an opportunity for everyone to learn. There are some resources linked on the show notes page, so feel free to check those out. Most of the research I read about imposter phenomenon emphasizes the need for additional studies. And so if you're in a grad program or need to write a thesis or a dissertation, have at it. Thanks very much for listening. I think there will be one more episode before we get to the annual meeting where I'm very much looking forward to seeing everyone in Portland, Oregon, the first week of April. In the meantime, carve out some time to be vulnerable. Drink some more water, stretch your legs, treat yourself with the same kindness you afford to others. Until next time, I'm Doug McKenna. And this is for the record.